I think that we're all ready for 2020 to be over and we have anticipation for our guy to put his hand on the Bible and start hitting the reset button, but also getting moving on important things that are going to impact real people and small businesses alike in this country. We're ready for it to happen. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. In this episode, I caught up with John Anzalone, a leading Democratic pollster and an advisor to Joe Biden in his presidential campaign. John's firm also works for other prominent Democratic candidates and officeholders. If you're interested in more about John's background, you could listen to my earlier interview with him on this show. For today's episode, we mostly discussed the 2020 election. You should listen. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with John Anzalone of ALG Research. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. John, thanks for coming back. Since you've been on before, could you just talk about what you do? What was your relationship to the Biden campaign and how the company is? Yeah, sure. You know, we're a national polling firm. Um, I mean, that's what we do at the heart of our business is message development and targeting and, and polling. My relationship with Biden started when I was 23. I was a Iowa field organizer. I was the first guy in Iowa for him in his first presidential campaign. So it's been a long history of knowing Joe Biden and the Biden family. And once you work for him, you kind of become part of the Biden family. They're just like that. You're like 25 now? <laughs> yeah, right. 56-year-old guy. But, you know, this is a great bookend to have been his pollster and part of the polling team. Uh, and I guess, again, to provide to the campaign and to him, you know, message development as well as targeting. People like to think that when they hear the word pollster, it's kind of a pronosticator or a Nostradamus. And, you know, 80% of what we really do is message development and trying to help candidates and campaigns with their, their campaign narrative, right? And almost everything that we do in that space eventually gets made into a, you know, a TV ad or a digital ad or a mail piece or maybe some components of a speech. It's a satisfying lane to be in, even though the narrative about public polls um, has been pretty disheartening. How much does the candidate himself get involved in message development in this campaign? Yeah, I think that whether it's Joe Biden or whether it's, you know, other clients like Gretchen Whitmer, who's who's great, or, you know, Steve Sislak, governor of Nevada, you know, or one of our congressmen, Pete Aguilar. The bottom line is, is that these candidates, including Joe Biden, especially Joe Biden, has a foundation that is incredibly strong about what their belief systems are, their principles are, and where they want to go. 
I mean, Joe Biden didn't need to poll before he announced, right? I mean, he knew exactly what he wanted to say. I think a lot of what we do uh, for most of our clients, again, I think that there's this narrative that pollsters do these polls and message development and tell the candidates what to say. That's that's the farthest from the truth. Those are rarely candidates we want to work for. I remember David Axelrod telling me that one time early in my career that he never wanted to work for a candidate who didn't know basically what they wanted to say and what their vision was and why they wanted to run. And it was a really good lesson for me because I found that when I took those candidates, they were the ones that you didn't want to work for. They didn't know why they were running. Well, Joe Biden or Gretchen Whitmer or Steve Sislak or Pete Aguilar, they know why they're running. And so there was certainly a, a really strong foundation of why he wanted to run, to heal this nation, to help the backbone of this nation, the, the middle class, right, to unite this country to solve COVID. A lot of what we do is reinforcing that and testing the things that he believes in and reinforcing and putting some maybe some focus on it for the paid media team as well. And, and I think that that's important. And naturally, states are different, right? Battlegrounds. And Nevada is different from Michigan. Uh, North Carolina was certainly different from Wisconsin. And so there's also nuances that you may bring to the table by doing some of these battleground states. I mean, you know, we were fortunate enough to pull in North Carolina where we do Roy Cooper. Uh, we were fortunate enough to pull in for Biden in Michigan where we do Gretchen Whitmer. Um, our partner in crime, Celinda Lake, had done a lot of work in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, and she did those states. So she brings a certain level of expertise um, to the table for the dynamics in that state. And I think that that can be helpful as well. When we talked before, one of the things you noted was the stability in the race. Given that, and kind of in a campaign that did seem to stick to a plan throughout, what most surprised you along the way? Well, I actually think that what I talked about back when we first talked was about Biden's stability, the stability of Biden's vote. Why that's important is that you hear a lot, again, of teeth gnashing about public polls. And unfortunately, I think the political consulting pollster takes some of the heat for the public polls, and we do very different things. But we always saw the stability in Joe Biden's vote in the primary and in the general. And I think that that is really key. And there were times during the general election campaign where the pundits and insiders would constantly say, oh, this is going to be a dynamic changer. You know, oh, whether it's George Floyd or, you know, whether it's going to be the Republican you know, convention on law enforcement or, you know, you can go down the line five or six times. You know, oh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, that's going to you know, be a game changer for the Republicans, whatever. And each time Biden's vote just got stronger. I mean, we have to remember that his popularity actually increased and it solidified his vote. But where I'm getting to is the fact that what we always focused on, whether it was the pollsters uh, or Becca Siegel, who is the brilliant uh, analytics director and the paid media and strategic team, was not the margin, which is what media firms, you know, the CNNs of the world do, but where Joe Biden was and his vote was incredibly stable. And in battleground states, we wanted to see his vote at 49, 50, 51. That was what was important. It wasn't the margin. And we didn't think that he was going to get much more than what he pulled. And guess what? He didn't get much more than what he pulled. And so in terms of our analysis, the analysis is the stability of his vote. 
where his vote was. It was never the margin because we saw in 2016 that Trump does cause a certain interference in polling, mostly because of his turnout mechanism. If we nominated another candidate who didn't have the profile of former vice president and long time senator, do you think you would have seen that same stability? No, I don't, because voters had a sense of who Joe Biden was at many levels. And on all of those levels, he filled the void of a weakness of Trump. And so they knew he was experienced, which was really important because during COVID, Trump showed his vulnerabilities on experience. He showed that he was inexperienced to deal with a crisis. Experience being the top trait or characteristics and reason for people to vote for, for Biden was really, really important. The other thing is that he was also a very empathetic and compassionate person, which again, filled the void or the need for this country that Trump was so divisive and mean and unkind, not only during COVID, but just in general in his presidency and his candidacy. People knew Joe Biden. They knew about his tragedies. They knew about how he, in a way, helped people through and nurtured people through because of that. There were so many times in focus groups we heard people say, you know, Joe Biden's lived my life or I've lived Joe Biden's life, including, you know, the fact that, you know, his father was unemployed, had to move the family, and then he kind of grew up scrappy on the economic side. There was a lot of levels of connection with voters. And voters often say, oh, hey, you know, I, I kind of get that guy or get that woman as a candidate. But very few times do you reach the level where voters say, that guy gets me. And I think that was the sweet spot for Joe Biden is that voters felt that Joe Biden got them and had their back. And that was really an important connection, I think, that is often missed in the analysis of Joe Biden being the right guy at the right time. You talked about teeth gnashing about public polls. I remember not too far before the end, the campaign manager came out and said, it's a lot closer than, than you think which seemed like a very intentional statement, obviously. Did you think the margin was going to be where the margin ended up? Right, because, again, it, we always focused about on where we had Joe Biden in the polls. And so if you had Joe Biden in the polls at 51%, that's where you believe Joe Biden was going, going to end up. So, again, you figured that the margin was going to be filled by Trump on a lot of different factors. And we saw that in 2016. We just didn't know that that was the case. Meaning, you know, we actually looked too much at the margins in 16 when we polled for Clinton and not where she was. And in the final analysis, she got what she polled. And so she was never above 50. And that was a problem in these battleground states. Well, Biden was at or at 50 or slightly above in the battleground states. And, and that mattered. And so, again, you know, Jen O'Malley, who, again, was brilliant in her strategy of putting this campaign together, was laser focused uh, on the right battleground states and laser focused on where we were and what we had to do to maintain being at 50 or 51. And she succeeded in what she set out to do. Turnout seems to be a huge part of the story just very high, both sides. Is that something that you can measure before? It's really hard. I mean, you know, analytics certainly takes an attempt at modeling 
and we depend on them and they do a great job of that and they do a great job of targeting. But at the end of the day, we're not really modelers. We try to take the information that we have and use it uh, to pull the appropriate samples and do the right weighting. We're not going to get it right all the time. And we know that there's just some states that are more difficult to pull than others. Um, we were polling in Georgia and, and nailed it, right? I mean, you know, we felt very good about that as early as two or three months out that this was really a possibility and then that this was going to happen. And then there's some states that are just really tough to pull, like Nevada, which has a singular uh, economy based on gaming and tourism um, that has a lot more non-college educated voters, et cetera, et cetera. And so not every state is the same in terms of how you approach it and how you how you pull it. And that's just, that's the way it is. I mean, we always have to continue to try harder and innovate in what we do as pollsters because it's a very, very difficult industry. Was there any meeting or decision that you think was really pivotal to winning? The most pivotal decision to winning is making the decision to run. It sounds pat, but the fact is, is that, you know, Joe Biden in the beginning of January and February of 2019, when no one thought if he got in, he would win. Everyone talked about him collapsing and it never happened. Again, the stability of our vote uh, and the connection that he had uh, with this campaign. You know, there's always marginal decisions that you make. I mean, clearly, even in, in the infrastructure, right? I mean, hiring Jen O'Malley was a big effing deal. Um, she put a tremendous campaign together. Staying focused on the core uh, battleground states was really important. Competing on the economy, I think, was a very important decision for this campaign that, you know, unlike 2016, where most of the media by Hillary was anti-Trump, 90% of our TV and digital and mail was positive, And it laid out Joe Biden's vision and agenda on COVID, on the economy, build back better, on health care and on united this country. And so people at the end of the day knew exactly what Joe Biden wanted to do as president. And that was maybe the most critical decision was to continue to spend money laying out his vision rather than just trying to uh, hit Trump uh, negatively. What the Trump did was most effective in terms of persuading people to vote for him? Well, can I start by saying what was most effective? You asked what was the most impactful for Biden. The most impactful thing that Trump did was what he didn't do. He spent six months trying to take Joe Biden down and they never learned the lesson in June, July, and August that they couldn't move his unfavorables, that they couldn't move the impressions that voters had of Biden. They didn't think that he was a radical left guy my God, he just ran against the socialists and, you know, 18 other uh, liberals. They didn't think that he was going to defund police. They didn't think that he was going to raise their taxes. They never learned the lesson that what they should have been talking about was how Trump was going to save the economy again. And he rarely ran any positive ads on his vision and agenda. And I think it was a critical mistake for them to not have as their singular campaign strategy and message that Donald Trump was going to come in on his uh, gallant horse and save the economy again and how he was going to do it. And so it's not only the decisions that you make 
that help win elections. It's the decisions you don't make that help you lose elections. That is really critical. Now, what I think he does do really well, and unfortunately, it's almost all, again, disheartening and negative, is that he targets the Democratic base. Um, They do a lot of communication in the African-American and Latino space, and it's all negative. It's all disinformation. Uh, It's mostly despicable. It does work at some level peeling people off. Even though we matched Hillary's numbers within the Hispanic and Latino community overall, his numbers, Trump's, moved up a little bit, which meant it came from, you know, third party voters, et cetera, of those minority uh, communities. But he ran a, I hate to say it, a successful disinformation campaign um, in the minority communities. Now, he runs those in the in the white communities, too, with white non-college educated voters. But Biden still narrowed the margin among those voters, including rural voters, um, because he had something to say. I mean, it does seem like Trump ran a notably undisciplined campaign. They couldn't come up with a negative that, you know, uh, they, they didn't stick on a message uh, on the negative. Uh, I mean, they started in June on China and trade in the Midwest, and they would move to defund, and then they would move to burning the country down, and they would move to taxes, and they would, you know, I mean, you know, they moved all around. But again, the big lesson that they did not learn is the voters had a relationship with Biden and they weren't buying it. Voters were calling bullshit on most of what Trump said about Joe Biden. And you also have to, you know, if you're in the Trump campaign, understand, which they didn't, that the messenger wasn't credible. And so, again, I think it was malpractice on their part for not driving an economic message. And of course, you know, not going anywhere in a reasonable COVID lane. You're talking about the strong relationship with Biden. I think a lot of people think that Biden's strength was because of the the strong negative relationship that a lot of people had with Trump. How do you distinguish? Are you saying that, that... In other words, that they're with Biden because they don't like Trump? Yeah, I think that that's a false narrative. I think that that is too simplistic in the analysis of this election. I think that if you don't have a good alternative, they stay with Trump. I think that, you know, there would have been many other Democratic nominees where that dynamic wouldn't have mattered. Meaning, listen, they didn't like Trump in 2016. A matter of fact, his fave unfave was better in 2020. Hard to believe, but it it was. And so the alternative at that time, unfortunately, made them hold their nose and vote for Trump. And so that same dynamic could have happened in 2020. And so I don't think that people give Biden enough credit for making sure that he was the acceptable alternative because people still could have held their nose and voted for Trump. And this was at the end of the day, still a very close election, right? I mean, it was basically, if you add up the the three closest states, right, you're very close to his margin of victory of the three Midwest states into 2016. This stuff matters. Being the right alternative and telling voters what you're going to do as president, what your vision and agenda is, is important, even if your opponent uh, in the incumbent is grossly disliked. John, tell me about what you were doing on election day. How were you feeling? Where were you? What was that experience like? So much was riding on it. We have to be honest with ourselves that any of us who worked for Clinton 
had a there was a collective PTSD in the Democratic community. You didn't have to just work for Clinton. And so, you know, I did it at home because, you know, it, there wasn't some big gathering, which was different than us being in Brooklyn with the key strategic team in 16. Um, so I was with my family and there was alcohol involved and we just kind of, <laughs> you know, hung out. Um, my son was home from co his college from his freshman year and I'm proud to say that he nailed uh, his electoral college map in his poli-sci 101 class. <laughs> if anyone should, he should. Right, he should, right. The next day, kind of knowing that it was going to take a good week maybe for the count, we went down to the beach with two other couples who were in the business and just kind of rode out the count uh, in a beach house uh, with uh, friends and good food and uh, good alcohol and, you know, watched it all kind of play out like we thought it would. You know, it took longer. There was a little more angst involved. But, you know, the states that we won, uh, including Nebraska, too, are the ones that we thought we were going to win. And the ones that we lost were the ones that we thought we were going to lose. Do you have thoughts about why Democrats down ballot underperformed compared to at least expectations, kind of broadly held expectations? Yeah, I think that. First of all, I think that there's very much, this goes into the narrative before the election about public polls, again, focusing on the margin, that this was going to be a Biden victory comfortably. And I think that voters do a checks and balance math. You know, they're clearly fine with Biden because he's a moderate and they knew what he was going to do. And they thought he was going to provide leadership on COVID and the economy, et cetera. But I think they do the math and they see that the Democratic, the House is Democratic. And they weren't, quite frankly, comfortable with the whole shooting match being Democratic. There are a couple other things is that also voters did not believe that Biden was a radical left guy. They didn't think he was going to defund police. They didn't think he was going to raise their taxes. Um, they didn't think he was going to try to get, you know, universal health care or single payer. But voters do believe that swing voters do believe a lot of that about Democrats writ large. And so while the attacks in the negative branding didn't work on Biden, I think they did work on Democrats writ large. Uh, and I think that that's part of it. But I also think that there is a psychological part where voters kind of like divided government. Um, and I think that that played itself out. And I also think that, again, if you're kind of a swing independent voter. And for those additional voters that Trump got out, you're going to default to, to Republicans. Something like two thirds of incumbent presidents win re-election, but when they don't, it's when times are not good, most generally, right? And the minute it became clear that Biden won, I started to worry about 2024 because there's so many deep challenges facing the country right now. And we could be in a big mess three, four years from now. And this current president, who's so awful, could attempt to come back. And he seems to have a bit of a lock on that party. And he could be their nominee again. And we could have the nightmare return. What do you think are the chances? Well, to be honest, I do not have the capacity to think ahead to 2024. But um, I actually think that Again, Biden is the right person at the right time. I actually have a theory about 2022 midterms, where usually it's a bad year for the president party in control. But I actually think that all the rules may be thrown out 
generally in politics, clearly, that Biden has this opportunity to come in there and lead on COVID. Uh, we're going to have a vaccine. I think the economy is going to be running. I think he's going to look at the economy and not, again, build back better, not just get where it was, but make it better in terms of the opportunities that people have. We clearly, COVID has exposed the inequalities in healthcare system, the inequalities in the economy in general, the inequalities in education. And I think America is ready to fix a lot of those. And I think that if Biden can get some cooperation, a lot can get done. And it may be that by 2022 and 2024, we've seen a lot of these things fixed and people are feeling better about their economic lives, about their healthcare lives, about their education lives. So, you know, I'm not ready to see that it's going to be bad. Um, I think that the opportunities are there and Biden's the type of guy who just grabs opportunities and makes them into realities and he's going to have a great team around him. One thing that I've noticed is that popular governors across the country of both parties have often been the ones that had moderate profiles that, you know, the, the liberal Republicans and, you know, the more moderate Democrats. I think there's an opportunity potentially for Biden because of his profile to sort of create a, a larger electoral coalition out of the way he governs. Is that what you think? Yeah, I think that, again, I have a theory that I think that Joe Biden has the ability to have a 60 percent positive job rating um, may not happen overnight. Um, he may or may not get a honeymoon period because there's so much going on and there's so much chaos and frustration with people. But again, he's the type of guy who's, who's going to get to work and he has an agenda. He knows what he wants to do. What you said about the governors, I mean, we have four governors that we represent, Whitmer in Michigan, Sisolak in Nevada, Roy Cooper in North Carolina, who for the second straight time won while Trump won his state, and John Bell Edwards in Louisiana. In 2018, there I think also another false narrative, you know, that the liberals won. Well, all of them were moderates. Whitmer and Sislak uh, were moderates who beat what would can be considered much more liberal uh, primary opponents, um, and they won the general election with them being being moderate. You can be progressive and moderate at the same time. By the way, I mean I'm not going to let you know the ultra liberals hijack the term progressive. Um, we're progressive, you know, Gretchen Whitmer is a progressive, but she's, you know, also a moderate. She's, you know, she ran on a transactional platform of fixing the damn roads. She's about getting things done. Uh, and that means that she's going to reach out in a bipartisan way to get it done. And so will Joe Biden. How do you see uh, the Georgia runoffs coming up? Well, I think that everyone kind of understands that the way to win Georgia is everything has to work out perfectly. Joe Biden showed that. I mean, you got to win in the suburbs. You got to narrow the margins in the northern and southern parts of the state, uh, in those small and rural uh, towns. You know, you have to have an extraordinary turnout in uh, Atlanta and DeKalb and Clayton uh, in the Atlanta area. So everything has to work out perfectly. And Joe Biden won by 12,500 votes, right? We know that that it's tough and it's hard to do. Uh, we've got two great candidates, and there's not one person in America who can tell you who exactly is going to turn out. We should be very careful about the pronostication. You know that whoever does a better job, quite frankly, in getting their people out, we have to try to get very close to 30% African-American as part of the electorate. You add to that Latino and Asians, and you can get you know high into the 30s. 
You have to have a really robust turnout in the suburbs because that's where we've been gaining ground in the Cobbs and the Gwinnett's of the world. And so everything has to happen perfectly. But, you know, there's a reason that Biden went to Georgia yesterday. I went over there. I was with him. He's, you know, prepared to use some of his political capital to, you know, talk to voters to say, you know, give me these two so I can get even more done. So uh, we'll see. Um, But everyone understands what has to be done and what the expectations are. Sounds like you're still working. Do you get a chance to rest during this part in the electoral cycle? Well, the nice thing is, is that when you win, you really don't get a whole lot of rest. Um, but, you know, the holidays are coming up. If you're a political consultant, you kind of love, you know, Christmas Eve all the way to January 2nd. That's kind of your time when no one can catch you. But, you know, no complaints. Will you have any role in the government and advising from outside, uh, you know, on cabinet picks or on policy or? There's a transition team that was set up months and months and months and months headed by, you know, Ted Kaufman and other brilliant people. That's outside our pay grade. You know, we're team players. We do what will be asked of us. And, you know, once the new year's there, you know, we will, you know, engage certainly with polling and message development and policy and things like that. The strategic team and the transition team and the inaugural team have really important stuff to do. Uh, pollsters don't have a whole lot of, to do with that, which makes a whole lot of sense. And so, you know, we'll have a role come the new year. What you want to do is you you want to you want to be part of the team and you want to be impactful where you can, uh, even if, 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 if it's small uh, uh, and on the margins, as I say. So we're ready for that. John, one of the things that people criticize in retrospect, I don't know how fairly, about Bill Clinton's time and Obama's time is that there was a lack of Democratic Party building going on. The focus moved to governing as it should, but the party building was left behind. Do you think that happens under Biden? Well, listen, I think that, you know, you had Jen O'Malley, who was the campaign manager, who came from organizing, who came from putting field programs together, putting political operations together, and now putting an entire campaign together. So she gets it. She gets how important that is. I don't know exactly what the infrastructure is going to be. I mean, they're picking cabinet secretaries, right? So, you know, but, but picking the chair of the DNC and, and the staff is important. You know, you saw what Howard Dean did, right, uh, when he was chair, and he put an emphasis on sending money to states like Alabama, who could hire a communications director, who could hire field directors, et cetera. We'll see exactly how that plays out. But I think that this is a president-elect and a team who understands the importance of party building and infrastructure building. And there's no better example than Georgia. Georgia could not have happened without the investment in the infrastructure that someone like Stacey Abrams did in 2018. The Biden campaign built on that. There's other states out there like that. I mean, Hillary did that in 2016 with Arizona. You know, she helped put that state online. Um, But you have to spend money, not only in existing states, but in states that may be coming online again. 2022 is is the year where we have a ton of governor's races, something like over 30. And so it's a good year to have a commitment in the states uh, to help Democrats get elected. Any other observations you want to make about 2020? 
I think that we're all ready for 2020 to be over and we have anticipation for our guy to put his hand on the Bible and start hitting the reset button, but also getting moving on important things that are going to impact real people and small businesses alike in this country. We're ready for it to happen. I'm sure relieved and happy every day just to see normal people getting appointed, skillful people, not grifters and uh, fanatics. One of the things that Biden always says, he was going to he was going to hire experts. And these are people who kind of understand the problems that families and small businesses are going through. And that is going to be their focus every day. John, honor to talk to you again. Anything else you want to say? No, thank you so much. Have a great rest of the December and holiday season. And we'll, uh, we'll talk to you in the new year. Awesome. That was John Anzalone of ALG Research. He's at algpolling.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.